Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode eight of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm your host, Andy's Mom. Today, dentist Kim Harms is my guest. Kim and I discuss the death of her son, Eric, who died by suicide 11 years ago. We talk about major depression and suicide. Suicide and depression often run in families, and in Kim's family, this is the case. The end result of deep depression can be suicide. Since Eric's death, Kim has started 33 libraries in Rwanda in memory of Eric and other children who have died. She also speaks to other dentists about suffering and mental health in the office, whether it be with the dentists themselves, staff, or patients. You may visit her website, dentalmediator.com. She also told me to invite anyone who wants a virtual hug to email her at drkim at pinelakelawfirm.com. Also remember to visit my website, andysmom.com, and subscribe for updates. I also love hearing from you and getting your emails. Well, I want to welcome you, Kim, to the show. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on today. Well, thank you, Marcy, so much for asking me. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing you're doing. Oh, well, I appreciate it. So I want to start out today by just having you tell me about your son, Eric. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. You know, we, we love our children so much. They're such a part yes. of us. He was a very amazing young man. I have, I have two older daughters who I love dearly, who have given me six grandchildren. <laughs> uh, and uh, I actually work for one of them. Uh, and then my youngest was Eric. And he, from the beginning, was an amazing blessing. He had this really curly, 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 curly hair that our little basketball teams that my husband used to coach would rub his head for luck. And he was just such an amazing person. He had a gigantic heart. He was a kid in high school who took the kids that were being bullied. And he was, he was bullied quite a bit himself. He was quite a brilliant young man. And and as you know, sometimes the brilliance comes with a little bullying on the side as you move through school. And um, he went through right. that in high school. Uh, he kind of found himself and he, uh, and especially in, the, he gave up football for theater, which, um, you know, he went to an all boys school, which was a tough decision, but um, he was a big guy. Um, but he would make, he would bring the kids that had been bullied, the younger kids. And they even had it, the, like they called it Eric's Corner. It was actually kind of a little, it was kind of a dedicated to him for a little bit until they did some, uh, some, some uh, remodeling at the school. But he would bring the kids after school that all the kind of the kids that were being a little picked on and so on. Mm-hmm. And I got him into band. And oh, music, nice. music was his, his other passion as well as theater. And he, he, he got into band and then he became the, the band leader. He was a drum major and, uh, and I, I think one of the funniest things for Eric, especially since he was connected to the football players too, was that uh, uh, some of the moms uh, 
you know, set, told me that, uh, that uh, you know, that there were more cheers and standing ovations for the, uh, the band. You know, at a <laughs> game. So he made band cool and people were, you know, they were cheering him at band. And he did that by including and by just being very loving. And he ended up going uh, to study engineering at Columbia University in New York. Mm-hmm. And there at Columbia, he was elected to student council, which gives you an idea that he was a a very charismatic young man. And he was also involved in their jazz program. He was a brilliant jazz pianist, Mm -hmm. very impulsive, which is, um, you know, one of the qualities that puts you at danger at risk for for, uh, suicide. And and very loving and caring. And they they called him at Columbia. um, The dean said he was a big white guy with the Afro who hugged everybody. So, you know, I think that, I mean, that I'm so proud of him, as you can see. Um, and, uh, and one, uh, he, he went, had his first semester at Columbia. He was on top of the world. He was in love. He was, he, everything, he was on the Dean's list. Everything had gone well for him. He loved Columbia. Right. And two weeks back into the second semester, his girlfriend broke up with him. And 45 minutes later, he was, he was gone. He was gone. He died from suicide. And uh, as my mother had, as my nephew had two years before. So this is, I mean, I'm right. I'm in the sandwich. My mother and my son both took their own lives. So, um, and I certainly have been in, and I, I, suicide runs in family. Depression runs in family. I suffer depression. Um, We've had a number of members in our family in that dark pit of despair, you know, suicidal Mm -hmm. depression. I've been there. So I understand that myself, but obviously, you know, I, you just put your life and your soul into these children and yes. he's my only son. Uh, and I did not, and I've been through a lot of my life. I'd been through many, many, my husband had just had a liver transplant six months before Eric died and uh, from liver cancer. And uh, we were still trying to cope from that. He also, my husband, I'm a dentist. My husband was my dental partner. So we had to, you know, sell half the practice and adjust to my husband in recovery. So I was, working, trying to, you know, deal with that and with my husband and then now my son. And, and then when you have, uh, especially when it comes to suicide and multiples and like you have in my family, um, my son's death also brought back my mother's and the the guilt and the what ifs and why me. And I'm the one in the middle. I'm the, I'm the the connection between the two is, you know, then you have all the shame and the guilt, all those things going on in your head. Yeah that completely uh, leave any sort of recovery (laughs) from this. uh, Well, it's hard because you know logically that that doesn't make sense, uh, but emotionally you can't get yourself to believe it sometimes. No. Yeah. I've had those same kind of struggles. I think we all probably have to a certain extent. I can see why yours would be really extreme. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, you, you have been through any time you, you lose your child for any reason, a child, you're not supposed to lose your child. You're they're supposed to be. No, you know? no. So your, your, your view of life, your, everything you held dear spiritually, God, I mean, I'm a strong Christian God. What, you know, what, what, right. what, well, yes. you know, and, mm-hmm. and then your view of the light of your world where you're not supposed to lose your children um, and your view of yourself all of these things are challenged as you spiral into that horrible period of you can't eat, you can't sleep, you can't focus, you, you know, and, and, and when you, and, you know, then you have, you still have to be there though, because mm-hmm. you have family, 
right? Yeah. You know that. So yeah, and you had two daughters that you that still need you, and your husband still really needed you. Um, yes. To have and to go through all those medical things at the same time as losing your son, how difficult that must have been. Yeah. Yes, and he, um, you know, part of recovery from things like cancer and transplant involved you are on a kind of a knife edge of of depression and, and managing um, those things. So he uh, he was really in horrible shape as well and working. He was my work partner as well. Um, but I, I had something happen to me that was helped me clarify. It was a difficult thing for someone to say, but it really helped me clarify um, my role and the importance of trying, of fighting the depression. I mean, it's a, it's a battle. It does, you know, yeah. it's a battle. And um, that was a nephew, one of my, not my nephew, a cousin, when my husband's cousin was a patient of ours. And after we had gotten, gone back to work, which is a very difficult thing to do, uh, mm -hmm. so a few shortly after Eric died, he was in the parking lot one day and I was walking out of the parking lot and he was talking to Jim and Jim was crying and I went over to talk to him as well. And he had lost his brother at 17 or 19 years old, same age. And his brother had been out drinking with his friends and his friends brought him home and when he brought him home, he left him in the car. We live in Minnesota. It was like oh. my 25 degrees. And he basically froze to death in his car. Oh, and my that word. happened many years ago, but his parents never could get back to, uh, and I don't know what normal is. I mean, I don't even know how to define that, but they just couldn't get back to, to a functioning state. Right. Uh, and um, he said to me something that absolutely hit the core of my being and only someone like him could tell me this. I mean, someone that hasn't lost someone, you know, they can't tell you this stuff, but someone that lost someone can say this. And he said, don't you ever let your children think that they are not enough. Yeah. And I thought, oh, wow. Wow. That's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah, it um, is a tough one. And it, but it was absolutely necessary for me to heal. And I think I could feel almost at that moment, um, that I, I, I had the, I had the um, strength, that little mm -hmm. statement gave me the strength for the battle ahead, which is fighting off the demons of trying to recover from a, a catastrophic loss. Yeah, that is so profound. I, th what a wonderful thing. I just think about that in my own life too, feeling like I need to let my kids know that. Yeah. I know. I know my daughter had recently told my husband, I feel like all mom thinks about is Andy. Um, and I don't want her to think that because she is special and Peter is special and not any less special than Andy, not any less. Uh, so I need to make them feel that too. So that's a profound statement. A tough one. Yeah, it is a tough one. Yeah. And it was tough for me to hear that when my husband told me that I thought, Oh, what am I doing? I think it's, it was, it's the podcast has been pretty time consuming recently and it's just kind of starting. And, um, I think that's, that's what made her say that. So I'm trying very deliberately to not work on that when she's around and to give her my time. So, um, but I will keep that in mind too, that they're enough, that they're enough enough to keep going and enough um, to hopefully give me joy in my life again. Mm -hmm. So um, talk to me about those days and weeks after. Well, you know, it, it is 
absolutely, anyone that's been through this, and you know this very well, it, it, you can't even imagine how low you can go in the depths of despair when you've lost a child. I mean, it, it was, and I've been, I, you know, I'd lost my mother to depression, to suicide mm -hmm. when I was 17. I've been there. I've been yeah. there many times. My husband, I mean, I had a lot of, I've had, I had a lot of issues in my life that I had to overcome, which I think made me a strong person. But this one. Yeah. It's just not the same at all, is it? No, it's like someone just kicked your feet up and, and you're falling down like the Alice hole, you know, the, when you're following the little white rabbit and you go down that kind of, uh, uh, you keep falling and falling and falling. And, um, but I, I'll tell you that, you know, I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't focus on anything, I couldn't read, I couldn't, um, I couldn't listen to news or television programs or radio programs. It was like, I couldn't, I just was in this crazy state of shock where I'd wake up in the morning, just... I didn't want to wake up in the morning because then I would know this was not a nightmare because mm -hmm. the, only, the only way I could even think of this was as some horrible nightmare that you're going to wake up from. Yeah. You're going to wake up from, and I never woke up from it. And I kept thinking, Oh, you know, I just want to be like, you know, it's 11 years now. So I want to be here, but right. You know, 10, 10 years, 11 years ago, I wanted to be right here where I am now and just have, you know, just like just okay, skip time, skip, skip it. But the reality is it doesn't, time doesn't matter. No, uh, time does matter. It does matter that it, you, but you have to work through it. It takes time to work through that grief. Right. Time to, and so if I went to sleep ten years ago and woke up today, I'd be just as miserable as I was ten years ago. It's it's that working through the grief, working through the shame and the guilt and the what ifs and if if onlys and if I'd done this or if I had done that and if only this could have happened. You have to work through that. Our brains. I mean, it's like going through the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, you got to walk through that dark valley, and it takes mm -hmm. people different amounts of time. And I think the first year, um, I, I, I can't remember really. I don't remember. Yeah, I know. Like, I don't know what happened the second year. I kind of remember. And I, I kind of had, you know, cause we, what we were, I work, I, I go, I'm a dentist. I, I have sharp instruments in my hand. They don't want me focused on my dead son when I'm drilling on their teeth. I mean, I can't do it. You know, what the heck? Right. You know, right. 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 Like the, you know, we're like the wind from something <laughs> like that. So, so, you know, I had to put that show on at work, which actually was a help to tell you the truth to have to fake the smile. So I had to go and fake a smile at work. Luckily, I had an understanding staff. Um, I had another woman, another hygienist in my office who had lost her son two years before to suicide um, from after the breakup from a girlfriend. When she oh, my word. So we had two of us in the same office. And then my nephew also died. Uh, older, he was a doctorate student. He jumped off a building in Japan after, one of, after his thesis didn't work out. I mean, so I have... I have these people close to me that, that I've just lost. I don't, besides my mother and I'll never forget something too. I was in the, I was in the hallway of my office and it was, I was having a meltdown. I had like, we have some space where I could do that. So I was having a meltdown, you know, trying to be smile all day. And then I went and had a meltdown in the hallway mm -hmm. and, and I thought I was a bad parent. Maybe I pushed too hard. You know what? This is what you do. Mm -hmm. I pushed too hard. I just, Maybe I did this. I must have, I should have done this. I should, I mean, I was doing the whole, I'm a horrible parent. It's all my fault, you know, especially with the mother and the son, you know, so like what's, you know, their connection is me. Um, so I was going through that horrible shame and guilt and false guilt, really, but you go yeah, through. Yeah. Yeah. And one of my hygienists came up and she said, Kim, stop it right now. And I needed to hear this. You know, your hygienist lost her son. She is a completely different mother than you are. And she was, she had different philosophy. And then my nephew, she knows my nephew, my, my sister-in-law. They were completely different than you were. So don't, 
you know, you were three completely different mothers. All of your kids ended up committing suicide. It's not your fault. You, it's not something you did. They, you, you have completely different styles. Now, why that made a difference? It made a difference for me. It just right. little bits and pieces like that just helped me to learn, you know, it's not us. It is suicidal depression. He had right. a six years short of full development. He had a horrible traumatic experience because he loved this girl and was going to marry her in his mind. Right. And it's not her fault. I mean, if she didn't love him, she should have broken up with him. So there's no, you know, she, I, I feel she is in the same position that we're in. You know, she, she, she was oh, not. I'm sure she felt horrible. Too. Horrible. Mm -hmm. So, and then, then I think that the other thing that I think affected Eric in his case was he was extreme. He was a, he was a brilliant jazz pianist, which means he's very impulsive. Mm -hmm. That impulsivity, which was great when he's playing the piano, when you, you've just lost the, the love of your life and your girlfriend and you want to kill yourself, which many of us have felt after breakups, he does it. Whereas mm -hmm. we might think, well, maybe let's, let me, let me think a little more about this. Yeah. All those yeah. things, you know, kind of combined in my son. Um, but, oh my gosh, we, do we miss him? You know, especially oh, yeah. the grandchildren, we have six grandchildren now. He would have loved, they would have loved him and he would have loved them. Mm -hmm. um, and so every day you miss him. But I will tell you right now that, 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 the, that the message I really would like to get to the people that are listening to this, 11 years now, so it's been a while. I right now can live in the present. I'm talking to you and I'm, I, you know, and always, I will always love my son and the, you know, I will always feel pain that he's not here. But when I'm not here talking about him and I'm out, I'm out with my little grandchildren and I'm playing mm -hmm. with them or I'm with my, my daughters who I'm so proud of, or I'm doing whatever I'm doing, I'm doing it in the moment without the past. I mean, I have Eric on, I have Eric, my little spot that I have Eric, but I, I'm not, I can do that stuff. And all your people that go through this know what I'm talking about. I can do that stuff and I don't have that shroud or that, you know, it feels like there's a the heaviness, yeah, the heaviness, like pulling you under and you're like, you're trying to look happy and you're trying to be happy and you're trying to be in the moment, but you got the shroud pulling you under. I'm no longer pulled under. I can live 100% almost, maybe 99.9, but I, I no 100, 100% in the moment with my grandchildren. That's the biggest accomplishment of my life but it took a lot of work and it took time. And I just want your viewers or you know, people that are listening to know it's possible to have a life again that is fulfilling. I work for my daughter now, I have six grandchildren, that is that you can have joy. I have I experienced joy again. Who knew that could ever happen? I mean, real mm -hmm. joy. But I think the joy is even better because I've been down in the depths. So when you go up to the heights, and you've been in the depth. That's a big difference. So mm -hmm. when I'm feeling joy now, I'm also feeling the joy that I can feel joy. So it's like a double joy, you know, and I think that it's important for people to know that that's possible because you don't feel like that's possible for a long time. No, no. And I, and honestly, I'm still not feeling like it's possible. Mm -hmm. It's nice to talk to people like you and it gives me a little bit of hope that maybe sometime down the road, it will feel that way. You know, now there still is such a heaviness. And even when I have little times to celebrate that are happy, it's such a bittersweet happiness mm -hmm. um, that it, it just doesn't seem, it's just not as full right. as it, it used to the be. The missing chair, the missing chair is there. I mean, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I think it took about seven years or so for me, maybe eight, maybe 10. It's 11 now. So, <laughs> you know, so like, relatively recently is so, what you're saying. Relatively yeah. recently, you know, so it took time, you know, and, and I, I will tell you that I felt, and I'm, I'm just saying this to try to be encouraging because mm -hmm. I, part of the grief is a grief of knowing that you're a grief of thinking that 
the grief will never be over. So you're, you're having the right. grief and then you're grieving because you're grieving and then you're grieving because you think you're never going to have joy again. And it's, mm -hmm. a, I will say it's a battle. I, I, and, and yeah. I have to say my faith is what's, what has given me probably the tools necessary for me personally, and everyone's different, but for me, it's my faith that mm -hmm. is the tools to, to get to this point. I'll bet, you know, seven, eight years to get there, but, um, that's been really important to me for people that have a strong faith. I think it's that that's helpful. That was for me. I think everyone has its tools, you know, they have whatever. Yeah. Tools they are. have different tools to be able yeah. to use. Um, yeah. It, tell me about the other stuff that you've done. Cause you've done quite a bit to help people work with those who are suffering and grieving. Um, anyway, tell me about that. Well, I'm a little bit of an overachiever, so you don't have to do all this stuff to get, you know, to get to the joy part. But um, I think, you know, my whole band, I feel God puts us in on this earth for a reason and things happen for a reason, which is part of being able to cope is kind of accepting that God has a plan and you're, you know, and so he knows what he's up to. So um, what I've done, um, for, first of all, I, I had an opportunity to um, work with Books for Africa. I have a really, really, really good friend who was on the board of books for Africa and decided that she wanted to do a library in Eric's name in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. And I was hit with Rwanda. I don't know if you know much about Rwanda. I knew nothing. I was in the nineties. I was raising small kids. You know, I, you know, I, the world, rest of the world just kind of passed by me. I didn't know what was going on. I heard a little bit about Rwanda, but um, in 1994, it was a horrible genocide where, right. you know, where the over a million people were killed by their neighbors, you know, I mean, what the heck? Yeah. And, um, and they have been, so for 25 years, it's been 25 years, they have been rebuilding their country. And I think the story is not just the genocide, because there are genocides all over the world and still going on today. The story is how they recover, which is what I would, so I'm like, I'm in my searching phase, you know, how do I get over this? Like I, how do you know, I recover? Right. Yeah. Right. How do I recover? I was on steroids for searching, searching for joy on steroids and, and I didn't have it. So I was fighting to try to get it. And I said, well, who can I talk to? Well, Rwandan, who's suffering yes yeah for mm -hmm. the most i mean rwandans lost their family and i read a book called left to tell by immaculate Gezi, if i'm saying that right it's a beautiful book left to tell which describes her experience in a uh eight, eight young women in a bathroom hiding uh from the the people who were out there to kill them and had just killed their families and she ended up losing her entire family and wow. she was joyful I thought, what the heck? How the heck can she be joyful? She's lost her whole family. She's they burned down her home. She had nothing left. She is just all alone. How could this woman ever be joyful? So I went kind of on a search. <laughs> right. I'm a little bit of an and I found that in Rwanda. Uh, and we do now have 33 libraries there. And then I in my church, um, I work with a group that's called Hope Beyond the Grief. And um, we work with people, uh, we have we schedule seminars. Uh, right before the holidays, because those are the hardest times. Uh, right. Again, that empty chair is pretty big when, when it's Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter, mm -hmm. and loved one isn't there. So that's what we do. And, and we're all moms. We have, um, we, we, we don't, we will accept fathers, but mostly the moms show up. Right. Um, and <laughs> I know that's kind of how it goes. You know, men tend to grieve differently. And, um, and they, they're, they're one, one of our members lost three children in a car accident in yeah. Farmington, Minnesota, and the driver was one of my daughter's classmates. So, wow. yeah, and and uh, she she has two more at home. She's really amazing. One, two women lost their uh, children to murder. 
I mean, there's a whole another thing right there, murder. Yeah, it is. And, and, and some suicides and, and illnesses and, you know, different ages. And um, it, there is some some wonderful sisterhood, you know, or and it could be brotherhood too if it then would show up, uh, to having women, people together that have been shared a similar loss. And then to understand, you know, in murder, I never really thought about going through the justice system. So mm -hmm. you, know, you lost your kid, you lost your child, due to the actions of another human being, it wasn't right. a natural thing. And now you have to go through the justice system to figure out. Well, and, and even when it's not murder with, uh, I, I mean, we had to go through the justice system as well, right? Because we were, yeah. you know, rear-ended by a distracted driver and, and she, you know, was facing some jail time because it was, you know, clearly her fault. And, um, she ended up getting, um, uh, just a lot of community service and probation and her driver's license lost. But um, yeah. that is a process to go through, even if it wasn't on purpose, because for her, clearly it was not on purpose. For murder, it, it usually is, although sometimes you can be an innocent bystander as well, but at least there was an intent to harm someone, whether it was an intent to harm your child or someone else. Um, but that would be even more so. But it, it was interesting to see a little bit of a glimpse into that and having to go to court because we had to go to court several times, you know, for all of these. I, I just didn't know the legal system like I do now and how many meetings there are before you actually have a trial. And um, anyway, so it's, it is a process for sure. And I'm, I can't even imagine if someone knowingly and intentionally killed your child because that would be even worse for sure. And it, in some cases it's a, and some of the women I know it's a, a boyfriend or sometimes women get or trafficked and mm -hmm. killed. So then there's then, you know, in those types of deaths with which where there's these kind of overtones in the grieving process and in what people think, you know, like, oh, she was trapped. Oh, she was, you know, people start to judge suicides one. Oh, you know. Yeah. So you, those overtones in the justice system and I mean, all these things that I never thought until I met you and, and, and my friends in this group that you would have to drag that, you know, I never really put myself in that position of drag. I, I guess I knew it happened, but I never thought of the emotional toll of doing that. Mm -hmm. well, that that's huge because it drags on the death for a long, a long time. time. I mean, our final court date was June 29th and Andy died August 15th. Mm -hmm. So it was almost a full year of just the court stuff. Um, so, and, and there's still things with her insurance and settlement kind of stuff that's still ongoing. That's still not done. Um, so it, it does drag things out and you just want it done. I mean, I just wanted things done. And so every time I went to court and there was a new, oh, we need to investigate this. We need to hire somebody to do this. We, you know, we, one of the days I went and her attorney had said, well, um, maybe his head was out the window or he didn't have a seatbelt buckled. I mean, I was furious that day. Oh. It was like... I mean, they couldn't get his seatbelt unbuckled to get him out of the car. And our window in the minivan doesn't even go down. I mean, there's, uh, and I'm a pediatrician for goodness sake. My kids never, ever went in the car without their seatbelt. So it, it's hard when you hear some of those things. And those are little things. So I can imagine 
um, in a court case where you might, you know, the defense might be that it was self-defense and that your child did something to provoke it and it's not really their fault. That would be even more because, boy, my mama bear came on with the seatbelt and the head out the window for <laughs> yeah. sure. And, and and the women, you know, the choice of boyfriends gets involved in the choice, mm -hmm. you know, all those things that you, that we hear about. Were there, were there, um, were there legal expenses on your side? Uh, no, not on our side because it was, I mean, we didn't, we didn't do anything. I mean, there is, I guess there is some with uh, insurance settlement, but as far as the criminal case, you know, right. there wasn't at all. Um, and I, Anyway, I, I just don't even like to have much to do with it, to be honest. I mean, once the criminal stuff was over, I just like, I'm just tuning out. Um, I signed over everything to my husband to handle with the other attorney because I just can't, I just can't do it. It's just too hard. So um, you can't focus on your own healing when you're still caught up in the event itself. I mean, it's almost like you have to get, it's that acceptance part of the event. You know, you have to get that acceptance part like mm -hmm. work through which is hard mm -hmm. but you can't how can you work through that when you're still when someone's making things like that about your you know you right and, and, and that was just her attorney i mean i yeah. don't even know that she knew that he said that because she wasn't even there that day um you know on the final court day i did speak and i said you know, that that really made me angry that day. And that day I wanted her to go to jail. I mean, I, that day I was willing to go like, yeah. you know what, honey, you want to go before a jury? You go ahead because I'm going to, you know. Um, but the, her attorney kind of apologized to me afterwards and said that was just me. That wasn't her. Um, just so you know, that wasn't her. Uh, and by the end of that whole thing, she was extremely remorseful, tearful, became suicidal, actually, was admitted. Oh. Um, and by the end, you know, we hugged. So, and oh. I felt like I could give really full forgiveness, oh, um, which was nice. It was really nice to be able to do that because it's hard to hang on to mm -hmm. anger against a person for that long, for close to a year. So to be able to let go of that was key for me to start healing a little more. Mm -hmm. The forgiveness is a gift for both of you. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a big gift for both of you. I'm so glad you could do that because you can't, mm -hmm. you really, it's one of those things that sticks you in the grief, gets you stuck in the grief process. It's like to work through all that, something like an, if, if you can't forgive, you, you can't move on and you're in your, in your journey, in your, you know, it's like a journey in your head. Isn't that kind of crazy? I mean, as a yeah. pediatrician, it's those neurons in your head that control everything you do. And you can't, you can't get through that. You can't get on the other side of the, of the valley mm -hmm. until you get that worked out in your head. And, and forgiveness is a, is, is like a necessary requirement to get over to the other side. You know? And I have heard from other um, parents of, children who have died by suicide, that they end up feeling a lot of anger towards their child too. Did you ever feel that way or not really? You know, I've been in the pit, you know, mm -hmm. I've been in that spot. It kind of runs in our family. When you're in that really, and I've actually attempted myself, you know, a few times when I was younger, but when you're in that pit, what happens is you're, it's like a brain attack and it's like your brain is just telling you that you're, 
the world is a better place without you, you know, you're no good, you're no, and you're not really thinking. Mm-hmm. When you think about what the effects of, when you think about the effects it's going to have on the people around you, uh, you think it's, oh, they're going to be, they're going to be so much better off when I'm gone because I'm such a worthless human being. That's kind of what goes yeah. through your head. So having been there, yeah, no, because yeah. I knew that he just, it was a, and his, you know, it was, he was actually calling for help at the time and it just, there were a lot of things that went wrong. So he put himself in a situation, but I, I, I know, you know, how could, oh my, he's my baby. How could I, right. I think, I, right. But I, I have talked, I spoken I to people yeah. that do. I, yeah. I mean, I, I spoke to somebody just recently whose um, aunt and uncle put away every single picture they ever had of him and never talked were never to talk of him again. And at that, a lot of that was just the anger um, over the fact that he had decided to end his own life. Um, and that's so sad to me. Yeah. And, and that I, that's have, how people might react. Absolutely. And I have to admit that when my nephew died, I had a little bit just for a, a moment because I saw what his death had done to his, his, my sister-in-law. And mm-hmm. I realized, um, at that point that I was not helping her with any sort of anger. And right. in fact, um, she really, um, and, and we're all a little different. We grieve differently. My husband, I, my, my husband would sit in my Eric's room and, um, and he would go to the gravesite all the time. And that's how he grieved. And he mm-hmm. would listen to, to video of Eric and he would watch Eric and so on. That's how he grieved. My, I didn't go into his room for a year and a half. I mean, that sounds crazy. I couldn't walk. I get close to the room and my heart would start to like explode. And I just kept going down that hallway. I didn't go in his room for a year and a half. We kept, we'd like nobody cleaned that room for a year and a half. It's mm-hmm. crazy. He was the last one. We're empty. He was the empty nest one. So there was no need for his room. But, um, but I think understanding that we grieve differently and respecting that was mm-hmm. very, very important for us because we, we were very different in how we grieved. And important for your marriage, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So many marriages can um, be really ended after after the death of your child. And I think a lot Mm -hmm. of that is because people grieve so differently and it's hard sometimes to feel like you can understand that other people aren't grieving the exact same way that you are. Right. And sometimes the way, like for instance, my husband would like to, we work together in a dental office and I would go uh, go to our, our office, you know, between patients, and I would I would be like stabilized. I guess it's the best you can say for you know you're mm-hmm. like on, on robotic, you know, going straight. And um, I would go get up to my office, and I would hear my son's voice on a video that my husband was playing over and over again, and that would send me into a tailspin. I mean, I just right. I, you know those waves. You get those waves of grief that come, and they it's like a tsunami, and it just you're you're going along. You think you're doing really well, and then something comes and hits you. And that would happen to me in the office. So I had to just at that point say, yeah, "Honey, I know this is what you do. comforting to you, but." But please only do it in an area where you know I'll never hear it because it absolutely just, I mean, I, I, and I could just, my, you know, I had that, uh, that, that feeling of that being pulled under the rest of the day. I was suffocating the rest of the day with just the hearing his voice, you know, for mm-hmm. a short period of time. And so we had to work that out and, uh, you know, and, and try to get that all figured out. And it was hard too, because Jim was recovering right his own medical issues and uh, and and actually here's an interesting thing so my husband had a liver transplant he had liver cancer 
And before the transplant, you know, you, you know, you have to check everything out. Your heart has to be in good shape. Everything's got to be in good shape because they're not going to give you a new liver if you've got a bad heart, right? Mm -hmm. Well, about six months after, so he, Jim had checked out everything. All of his organ systems had checked out great before the transplant. And, the tra and Eric died six months after the transplant. And six months after that, Jim started having heart problems. And, and about a year after Eric died, or a year and a half, I think it was, after Eric died, um, he had quadruple bypass surgery. His valve had, you know, uh, it needed replacement. He, had, he ended up having a congenital hole in his heart, which was uh, not due to Eric. But um, he, I would express my, I would express my uh, grief more. And I also, I am also got treated for depression. I, I have depression. I, and so I, I got treatment. I said, okay, I'm, I'm depressed. Help, you know. Now I'm really depressed, you know. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I get treated for my depression. Jim is a strong Norwegian, you know, mm -hmm. uh, from a strong Norwegian farmer stock, and they don't admit that they're ever depressed. And uh, so he wouldn't admit it. He certainly, you could see it, but he would never admit he was depressed. He would never get treated for depression. So he ended up with quadruple bypass surgery. And just and internalized everything. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I think especially, um, you know, among women and men both, but I, I tend to see this more in men from my group of friends. Um, they have to be very, very careful. And when I talk to dentists, I talk to dentists about grief and I just, you know, say you, it, it's okay to be depressed and get treated for it. We're in a profession where nobody wants to get treated for depression. They feel it's a, it's a, some sort of a weakness. And, you know, my, my, my mother and my son died of depression. So I'm going to get treated for that, you know, and I, and mm -hmm. I'm really clear about that. My husband still uh, to this day has never received treatment for depression. And, uh, and I think he's doing well now he's, he still has some health concerns, but uh, I, I wish he would. And I think that stigma about depression is there in a number of areas, and certainly in my profession, probably in yours as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we need to just let's treat depression. I think the, the 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 thing about suicide is okay. That's the end point of suicidal depression. Like, how do we treat the depression? Right. right. Dies and and treat that as you know, same thing as being treated for heart disease. Right. Right. And it is thought of so differently. Um... Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Um, I, you touched a little bit about the fact that you speak to other dentists mm -hmm. about grief and about other issues. I really want my listeners to know a little more about that because I think that's really cool. <laughs> well, actually, I just wrote a little mini book uh, called Emotional Emergencies in the Dental Office. And and I think that we as dentists as our, in our profession, and there's many, prof every profession, you know, People tend to be drawn to certain professions. We tend to be Type A personalities and focused, technical, techni you know, focused on the little. We, we deal in millimeters, you know, in the, in the teeth all the time, and uh, so we have a certain personality. And we don't dentists uh, as a group tend to have a little difficulty managing emotional issues within their offices. Uh, not only within themselves. I mean, we we have a trouble within ourselves. We're twice uh, we we have twice the rate of depression in our profession. No one wants to admit that. And we do have a, we're not the, the, the highest rate of suicide. We were like number two or three. We're usually in the top five or 10. You know, we have a high rate of suicide within our, within our profession and we don't, but we don't want to deal with depression. It's interesting that when, when I look at uh, the programs that are available for dentists, it's usually alcohol and drug rehabilitation, things like that. Uh, depression is kind of the silent killer. Nobody really likes to talk about it. So I talk about Emo, I, what I call emotional emergencies in the dental office. And what I, I, I 
define emotional emergencies as anything that takes your eyes off the tooth because you're dealing in millimeters. So if, if, if you're down there working on that tooth, you have to be focused on that tooth. You can't be distracted by some emotional turmoil you're going through right now. Your brain has to be focused on what you see in front of you because you're dealing in millimeters. And so I, I talked to, I'm going to be speaking at the American Student Dental Association Leadership Conference in Chicago in a couple of weeks. And uh, I go to meetings and I, I just really, my message to dentists is, manage the emotional emergencies, understand them, identify them, have a plan for them. And I think people, we also, uh, when patients come in and they've suffered loss of a mm -hmm. child, loss of a, a, you know, a divorce, anything that could, that's a major loss in lives, we don't know how to manage that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I'm, what I try to do is help dentists uh, manage those emotional emergencies in their life and also deal with mental illness and depression and also conflict management because that causes a lot of emotional emergencies if you're in conflict in your staff. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you say that because um, I have always gone to the dentist with my three kids. We always went, the four of us, there, there are two dental hygienists, so we would go back to back. Um, and Catherine and Peter always got their x-rays together and Andy and I always got my x-rays together because you get your x-rays once a year and we go in every six months. And so we were like x-ray buddies. So I knew, um, you know, it was when it was me and Andy or Catherine and Peter. And uh, that first time I had to go to the dentist with only the two kids. First of all, I got so physically ill that I didn't go. I couldn't go. I had to, I had to cancel. And Catherine and Peter ended up going, uh, Catherine could drive him cause she was 16 and had a license. And then, and then I ended up having to reschedule a couple weeks later. And then I still went in and I just cried through the whole visit and I got partway through, you know, and I had to have my x-rays and I knew Andy should have his x-rays and I got partway through the visit and, you know, and, everyone's feeling bad, right? I've known these people for a long time. Actually, Michelle, who has been on uh, the show mm -hmm. um, in the past, she's one of my best friends. Her husband is my dentist. So um, they know us well, right? Uh, and everyone in the office, they shut down the dental office to come to Andy's funeral. So I know them well, uh, but you know, it gets towards the end can I do anything for you? And I said, can I see Andy's x-rays? So they pulled up Andy's x-rays for me to just look at his teeth mm -hmm. one more time. Mm -hmm. So it's funny that you say that because they are going to see that side too. And it was especially hard for them just because they all knew me and my family so well. Um, but this is not going to be unusual. People walk in, you know, I, I'm going back to work in the next couple of weeks, actually. And um, a friend of mine who I met, another bereaved mother, knows someone else who um, lost their first baby. And on it was, um, it died really right at birth mm -hmm. and was full term. And she's pregnant again and expecting another baby. And the, now it will be her first living child. And, um, they were talking a little bit about me and that woman said, I need her to be my pediatrician because she will understand. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I think that's right in that it is nice to try to be around people who understand 
And if you can't be around someone who's really experienced it, if you can work with people who have been somewhat trained, like you are doing, you are helping Dennis be able to know kind of maybe a little more what to do, what not to do, how to help patients. Because you're talking about helping themselves and helping patients and helping have a healthy office that understands suffering. And um, no matter what kind of suffering it is, Mm -hmm. understands that and has a kind of mission to help people, whether they're patients or staff or whoever they are. So I, I, that's really awesome. Well, thank you. You know, I had, a, I, I had that, I mentioned a hygienist uh, lost her son two years before Eric, and she also lost a small child. And, and that happened before Eric passed away. And I did not realize what she was going through for such a long time, because mm-hmm. the other side of that is when you're a hygienist that's been treating people every six months or once a year or whatever, whatever your routine is, <laughs> When they come back in and there is a big loss and, and, and the patients know that you have suffered a big loss. Everybody, everybody in town knew who Eric was. He was the, the character. And so when they would come in, so every day for the first six months and then year, I would meet somebody new that had not. That didn't know. Or they knew, but they hadn't seen me yet. Mm-hmm. You know, so that first meeting. Yeah know or they'll talk about Eric and then they're really embarrassed oh he died you know then they're you know how's Eric doing well no he passed away oh my gosh then it's a huge oh I know and they feel terrible right so you have this recurring everyday trauma as you're meeting people for the first it's a natural trauma it's no one's just this is just what life is when you yeah talk to people for the first time after a death or a loss it's traumatic to have to read you know talk tell them about it and uh, so she was suffering both for the loss of a baby right after birth and then the loss of her son, who also took his life after a girlfriend broke up with him. She had to face both of those in our office, and I was her boss. And I certainly, we certainly, I did not understand. I did not understand what she was mm-hmm. going through. And um, and I don't think I really ever could until I went through it myself. So I know being with the people that have done have been through it, you can't expect other people to understand it. But I'm trying to. I'm trying to educate them so they do understand better. So than you I- do have a little glimpse anyway, yeah. because you're, you're right. You're not going to understand. You're not going to really know what it feels like. Just like I, I, I mean, you and I both lost our mothers when we were relatively young. I lost my mother when I when I was 21, mm-hmm. and it's just so, so different than even that because a lot of people have lost a parent or a grandparent or someone close and think, I, I kind of get grief. I kind of understand grief. And certainly I thought I did. I thought I did until this happened. And then I realized as far as this goes, I didn't have a clue. Right. It's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I still, it's like my goal to try to give people a little bit of understanding yeah. so they can appreciate what's going on just a little bit and know how hard it is and how much work it takes to get through. And yeah. And that, you know, like you talk about how a dentist works in millimeters, the emotional journey that you go on is a journey in millimeters. Mm -hmm. It is not a journey that you make great strides on a daily basis. You you go a millimeter at a time, um, which is so hard to think about sometimes, but it's important to feel like 
you tried to go that millimeter, you tried. And whether you didn't, and you took a few steps backwards. I mean, the other night I did, I went to a Bible study Mm. and it's funny because I originally this year, my Bible study was going better. And the last couple of weeks have not been so great. And I kind of knew that might happen, but they sang a a song in Christ alone that was, that I last heard at my son's funeral. And I sobbed. I mean, I sobbed and I was like loud and tears going everywhere. And I did not care. I just did not care who saw me. It was pretty big room and they were singing pretty loudly. So I don't think that many people actually did hear, but I didn't care if they did. And I know that night I didn't probably take any steps forward. And I felt like I moved backwards a little bit, but in actuality, probably hearing that song again for the first time was good for me because next time I hear it, it won't be the first time and it might not be quite that painful. Um, so I, it's, you know, it's just depends on perspective, I think. And, and, and facing those things, like my, my son was in a lot of things. I still can't listen to jazz music, unfortunately. That's my, the only one thing. It's the only thing I, I, I can't listen to very much. But, but he was in a lot of theaters and plays. And I actually have, you know, one of the hardest things I ever did was that first year is I went to a play at his old high school. And that was wow. so hard. Because he, I, and, and it was very hard. But then the next oh, time, I I went, it was a little bit easier. And then now my husband and I enjoy going to see it. Oh. And it took, it took a couple of times of just a heart crushing, you know, moment. I just wanted to cry the entire time I was there. I could almost feel, you know, you could kind of feel this presence, the whole place. And so one of the things that helped me, and again, everybody's journey is different and what works for one person might not work for somebody else. But I just tried to face the demons. I faced it, except for jazz music. But I, I can manage without <laughs> jazz music. I, okay, so I. That, well, that, and you can do okay without listening to jazz music. I, I mean, can, you I can know. live a good life without yeah, listening yeah, to jazz music. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you know, I think for me it was, and probably I really should just go and face it. But I really kind of got that joy part down, so I really don't think I need to. But, <laughs> but no, but I think that that's hard because, like, what about like I would go to I would go to weddings, my first wedding. And I started counting children. How many people, how many, how many children do people have? This person has two children. This person has three children. This person has how many children? I'd look and say, I used to have three children. I used to be, we used to be a family of five. Now we're only a family of four. Mm -hmm. And I would count children and I would like, Oh, I do that. I'd be jealous of the ones that had three Mm -hmm. children. These poor people had no idea I was judging them as they were walking across the room. And so one of the things that, that really showed me I was healed and I healed up on this a little bit earlier than the other stuff, but uh, is that I was no longer counting children and I could see a family of three and not feel bad. And of course now, I mean like 11 years later, what I didn't know at that time, we're a family of 12 now. I have six grandchildren and two son-in-laws that I didn't have mm-hmm. back then. And I'm a family of 12 and I was bemoaning being, you know, only a family of four instead of a family of five. So those, yeah, those- I, I'm with you on that. I have had that struggle. And I look at when I see three kids, mm-hmm. I look at the middle one. I keep, I always yeah. look at the middle one and I think, what would you, your life be like without the middle one? And, and, and always looking at those kids. And then, you know, someone told me, um, recently, you know, but you don't know, you don't know if that family with three kids used to be four. 
or used to be five or mom had four miscarriages or, and I thought, that's right. I don't know. So I shouldn't look at families in, at, you know, at the restaurant family of five and just get jealous because I don't know what's happening there. Um, and, and that was a, that was big for me actually yeah, sure. to start thinking in those <laughs> lines instead of just thinking in jealousy. It's, you know, yeah. I, I bemoan the fact that now we can go to a restaurant and sit at any table, you know, all those tables are made for four. Yes. And that's like depressing to me because I could never fit in one of those tables. <laughs> and we always had to wait for a bigger table to open. And now we just sit anywhere and that make, made me sad. But I'm, anyway, it was a big thing for me to start thinking about families in a different way and knowing that I don't know. Right. And by going to Rwanda, I know that's, I really overdid this, but going to Rwanda and looking around and they welcomed me, by the way, where I brought books and libraries there, they welcomed me like with oh, these women would just hug me because I brought those in memory of my son who I had lost and they had all lost their entire families. And so I was able, you know, once I went there and I looked at them and thought, oh my gosh, here's this joyful woman that doesn't have electricity in her home and has, has walked three miles to come and see me and lost her entire family. Uh, and has, has, you know, machete wounds on herself and was raped or what, I mean, I, I know, I know women, I know people that have had all these things have had babies from the rapists. I mean, you know, I have these, so going mm -hmm. there, just that, that, so the, the, the counting of children, that was probably the one fairly quick ending The my counting of children kind of stopped after I went to Rwanda, which is, you know, quite of a, a, a strong step to have to go there to do that. Right. But it was that understanding, as you said, of, we don't know what the other people have been through and, and we all have our, we all have things in our life that cause us uh, trauma and grief. And um, so we really can't judge. But. Well, and I think it probably was good for them too, to see that you came to do this because you did have a big loss yeah. because sometimes I think, I think actually of like my own foster son from Guatemala that he kind of was under this impression that all Americans just live a perfect life, right? And he had a tough life and things were hard for him, but things here are just perfect. So um, he certainly learned a lot too, having to go through this loss of Andy, because, you know, this is one of the most traumatic, horrible things that's happened to him in his life. And he has had a life of pretty horrible, traumatic things. Um, so just because geography is different and your socioeconomic state is different, that doesn't mean that you don't suffer tragedy and suffering. Um, so I think that's kind of important too, to think of that, that we all can go through this horribleness of losing kids and it just doesn't, all those things, all those differences just go away. We're just not different at all right? When it comes to that, that we understand each other, no matter what our background, you know, yeah, no matter also, what our race or our anything. So I was, I was connected to those women. They accepted me and they just like hugged me. Like you wouldn't like, like I would hug you right now, knowing you lost your child. Yes. Um, as a grieving mother. Yeah. As a grieving mother. And, um, that was, that was very healing to me. And one, one time I went, I do Memorial library so people can, 
have a library in memoriam of someone that they've lost. And so I did one at a place and I had set, I, I just listed all the names of people that I knew had lost children. I hadn't thought about this before, but they were 17. I, you know, wow. I, I couldn't believe it. So I put, I had a plaque with 17 names on it and I brought it to this, um, this uh, Solace Ministries in, in Kigali and, and I gave it to the director. And, um, and I think he thought when he saw the plaque that it was like the donors were on the plaque. And I said to him, I said, no, no, these are our children that we've lost and we're, we're, uh, we're, we're presenting, we're, we're dedicating this library to the children that we lost in honor of the children that you lost and how we have this in common. And he started, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps when I tell the story because he started to cry. And he said, that is, I can't believe that. I thought they were donors. These are your children. And he began to cry at the thought that we would do that. And that, again, that shared compassion. Mm -hmm. And it was his birthday. He goes, you know what? This is the best birthday present ever. Wasn't the thousands of books that were going in there. It was the fact that, the they, fact were that they were going for this reason. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. Well, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to be on today. This was really a wonderful conversation. I learned a ton. Um, so thanks for being on. Well, thank you, Marcy. And thank you for what you're doing because there's so many people out here that need to hear your message. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at andysmom.com. Be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.